Well, good morning. Uh, let's start children's church, shall we? Kids up through fifth grade, if you want to go, and if your parents want you to go, and everybody's copacetic with you going, beat it. For the, <laughs> for the rest of you, most of you may know that one of the mission organizations we support is called JoJo Sanctuary. And many, most of you might know, that the founder, director, executive, whatever, behind JoJo's Sanctuary has a pretty close attachment to this church. Uh, Heather Askew is the daughter of Rick and Casey, and we are grateful to have Heather here this morning to talk to us a little bit about what's happening in Thailand. Heather, if you would come up and share. Hi, good morning everyone. It's been a few years since I've been here. Uh, it's very cold here, you guys, <laughs> compared to Thailand where it's like 103 degrees today. Um, so I'll give you guys a little personal update first since you guys have been praying for me and supporting me for so many years. Uh, so I think you all know that I had surgery in January and I just appreciate everyone's prayers like for that. It was, um, I think my parents were a little bit more scared than I was. <laughs> everyone's been telling me like, oh, I must have been so scared. I was like, no, it was fine. <laughs> like as soon as they said it wasn't cancer, I was like, all right, whatever. Um, so anyway, the surgery went really well and I was in the hospital for less than 24 hours and yeah. And then, um, but I'm still on medication for nerve healing because basically the tumor, it was like this. Like this is the tumor and this is like the nerves around it that control my right arm. So it takes a little while for those nerves to like reheal. But um, yeah, other than that, I have full functioning and no pain or anything like that. So I very much appreciate everyone praying for me about that situation. Um, and since I was here last, I've had three more foster kids. And so I have a total of seven foster kids back in Thailand. Uh, my oldest daughter, uh, Angun, who we gave her an American name so people could say it, um, Sophie. Maybe some of you know her as that. But she's uh, graduated from college a year ago, and she's planning, hopefully, to come uh, visit the U.S. this summer. Um, she has an interview for her tourist visa on May 25th. So if you guys think about it, you could pray for that for her to pass her interview so she can come um, and visit in uh, July. She would come at the end of June and meet me in Los Angeles and then drive with me back up here to Washington um, in early August. So that would give her a chance to meet people who have been praying for her for so long. So um, that would be great if you guys could pray for that. Um, as far as JoJo Sanctuary goes, we started in 2016, and um, so it's been six years now. It's gone by really fast. Uh, we've gotten to see a lot of changes and work with a lot of people, uh, and it's been really cool to see how God has um, expanded our work, even during the time of COVID when a lot of people's work either stopped altogether or they lost funding or stuff like that. Um, we were actually able to expand some of our programs and hire two new staff members. So... Um, this is our current staff. So the three on the, which side is that? On the left, uh, Jay Butsaba and myself are the ones who founded JoJo Sanctuary in 2016. And then uh, Mimi, we hired in July of last year to be our full-time counselor because we have just, everyone we work with has had various amounts of trauma. So we wanted to have a counselor on staff to provide support for mental health for those people. And then Donut, we hired in August and her focus is 
um, our new group of uh, families who are doing the family strengthening program. And she's also working with orphanages to um, help them transition into having family-based care. So either reintegrating kids to their biological family or finding um, foster or adoptive families for kids who are currently living in orphanages. So that's been um, exciting to have them join our team and uh, just a little bit of <laughs> growing pains like learning how to become a team of five instead of three. Uh, but it's been really fun. Um, so our three main things that we focus on are education, protection, and empowerment. So for our education portion, we do a variety of trainings for child protection for children. During COVID, we had to be pretty much stop the, the way we used to do it because we used to do it at, like, schools and churches and stuff, and then everything was closed for a long time. And most things are still closed for group gatherings of more than 10 people. Um, so... We've been doing these trainings with our family strengthening program instead, but we have been doing a lot more with scholarships. So we now have five students that we're sponsoring to go to university. Um, and we, in 2021, we sponsored 27 students for either uniforms for school or for uh, tuition for their uh like not tuition exactly but school fees each school you have to pay school fees every semester for like books and school supplies things like that um so families who have more than two kids we generally sponsor one of their kids to um for their school fees so we were able to do that for 27 families which are the previous year we did 14 families so that expanded a lot um and that like the money that we raised from or that my mom raised from the flower sales last year paid for um that expansion which was great um, oh, I forgot to mention, um, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who helped with flower baskets and stuff. My mom sold, I think, 180 baskets, 187 or 180? 180. <laughs> we had some extras. I wasn't sure if that was included. So um, the fundraising from that was enough to pay for, we just got an office for the first time in December. Um, and so that is money is enough to pay for a rent in utilities and internet for a whole year. So we're really excited about that. It's like, whew, <laughs> that's like one less thing to worry about. Um, so we're going to put that in that account. Um, Oh, uh, we also teach about uh, healthy relationships for teenagers. Um, as Thailand has like a very high teen pregnancy rate, people uh, there's not very good like relationship training. Kids don't have a very good um, like example in their parents, and so we try to do uh, relationship, healthy relationships from like a biblical perspective. Um, even though a lot of the kids we teach are Buddhist, but it's like you can still use the same perspective. So. Um, and then positive parenting techniques is really important as uh, there's a lot of child abuse in Thailand. And so uh, we teach that basically it's based on the love and logic technique of like ways to um, discipline your kids without using, without being abusive. Uh, so that's been good as well. Um, for protection, we have done, we've really expanded our citizenship program. Um, in the past, we would do like four cases a year. So in Thailand, um, there's much like here, we have like a lot of uh, Native American tribes. In Thailand, there's a lot of indigenous tribes as well. But in Thailand, uh, they don't automatically get citizenship. You have to go through a really long process with lots of paperwork. And most of the indigenous tribes don't read or write Thai, so they don't even know what papers they need and stuff. So we help with citizenship for kids who are in that situation. So we used to do about four cases a year. And then um, in 2020, the end of 2020, uh, a church in Michigan decided they wanted to start sponsoring our citizenship 
program. So now we have 22 cases that we're working on. So that has really exploded, and that's been really exciting to see um, working on all these cases, like so many families. Um, we partnered with a Christian school that has a lot of low-income families there, and so we met with individually with each family who didn't have citizenship yet for their kids, and they were all, like, all of them were, like, crying and, like, we didn't even know who to ask for help, and this is such a huge thing, and we want our kids to have, like, a good future, and we didn't, like, this is, like, amazing that you guys are doing this for us. So that's been really cool to, to see that. They're like, this is just such an answer to prayer. We've been praying about this for years, and, like, there's a lot of extortion that goes along with that. People, like, want money to, like, help file the papers, but it's supposed to be free. So, yeah, so we help pay for that. So that's been really cool to see that program really expand. Uh, and then we've been doing short-term foster care as well. So, um, like I said, I've had three additional foster kids in the last couple of years, and my teammates have had a couple. Um, we're in talks to probably when I go back to the States, or when I go back to Thailand, sorry, I'm in the States. When I go back to Thailand, um, I'm probably going to have a couple, a brother and sister um, that are a little younger. Most of the time, um, all my teenagers, or all my kids have been teenagers when I fostered them. So, uh, yeah, and then my teammates just had a baby at the end of December, which has been very exciting to see her grow up. Her name is Blessing. Uh, so they're like, we could take an older foster kid, but probably not a two-year-old or three-year-old. That would be a little bit too much for us right now. They just have this new baby. So um, so we're excited about, like, continuing to do foster care and develop that aspect in Thailand. And um, we've been doing some mentoring with some of the older kids, especially like my foster kids who don't have other parents. Um, I'm staying very connected with them. And three of them right now are house sitting and dog sitting for me, which is very useful to have older teenagers who are 18 and can be on their own and um, make sure the house doesn't burn down while I'm gone. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. These ones up here. I took them to the beach. They were very excited. <laughs> we went to Phuket. Uh, yeah, so those three. And then this girl is one of the girls who got citizenship um, during COVID, got her paperwork, so that was really exciting. They've been working on her case since she was, like, seven, and she was 17 when she got her citizenship. And then one of my foster kids is currently 24, and we've been working on her case since she was 16, and it's still not done. So but she just got a call to go in for, like, the next level, and so hopefully in the next year it will be finished. Um, yeah, and then this family up here is uh, one of my foster kids who, and that's like her biological family in her tribal group is called Lahu. So that was visiting her um, grandparents and her sister. She actually transitioned from my house to go live with her sister. Um, so that was, we're trying to work on reintegration of kids into their biological families, which has been cool. Um, this one. Oh, we also collaborate with a lot of other organizations and with the government to develop the foster care and adoption um, process in Thailand. Um, and we've been working on that more the last few months as people as we're kind of coming out of the COVID lockdowns. Uh, and then our biggest project is the um, Building Family Dreams program. We have two groups right now. One group has six families and one group has eight families. And uh, it's an 18-month program, and they learn healthy ways to raise their kids and also get to spend quality time with their kids. We do field trips around uh, Chiang Mai and give them the opportunity to like build relationships with their kids and, and stuff instead of a lot of families will put their kids in orphanages because they're like, well, I can't afford to take them anywhere. And this way, if they're in an orphanage, they'll get to go on trips. They'll get to go to like the water slides or to all these different parks and they can go to school and all these things that I can't provide. So we try to take them on these things and be like, this is free. This is really close to your house. You could do this with your kids. You don't have to put them in an orphanage in order for them to have cool experiences. So uh, this is uh, 
Days for Girls is another partnership we have. They make reusable sanitary supplies for girls and women. And so we distribute those in really rural areas where they don't have access to disposable things. Um, so this is just in January. We went to a village and distributed about 150, I think, in one day. Um, and we're trying to look for other partners who are in even more rural areas and speak the local dialects and, so, and the different tribal languages so that uh, we want to train those people in Thai and then they can go and do the training in their um, tribal language and distribute so that we don't have to go super far to, um, to do the training and find translators and stuff. Uh, so we have right now we have about 700 kits ready to be distributed. So a few of our partners are going to be taking those out to more rural areas. So that's been cool to be a part of and see that as well. Um, and then if you guys want to follow us, if you're not following us already, uh, I have a little sign-up sheet. If you would like to be on our newsletter list, I do a newsletter every other month. I try to do one every other month. Um, so if you would like to get that newsletter, you can sign up with me afterwards. Uh, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And um, we have an email address if you'd like to email us with any questions or um, if you want to financially support, you can go to our website and just click the Donate Here button, and then that'll give you all the information for that. So thank you guys so much for all your support over the years and for your prayers. It's very appreciated and very felt for sure. So, <laughs> Thank you. Well, now you have some idea uh, as to why this is one of the mission organizations we support. They do a lot of stuff. Um, and they also have people with names like Blessing and Donuts, so how can you not <laughs> support them? I know we just had a couple of babies uh, born, but if any of you are thinking about having kids, put Donut on your name list. I just... It's <laughs> like such a good name. Uh, so before I jump in this morning, uh, a quick Al update. Uh, he continues to make progress. Um, the last couple of days have kind of been a, a, a peaks and valleys. Um, so when he's having a good day, he probably overdoes it. And then the next day is not quite as good. Um, sleeps a little more. But he is moving ahead in recovery. It's still a little too early to tell the extent or the, the lingering effect of uh, the brain trauma. Um, there will be extended rehab, no doubt. Um, but hopefully that can start sometime within the next month or so. Um, so please continue praying for that. Um, they're hoping to move him out of ICU on Friday but he had a little AFib Thursday night that has continued over the next day or two. Um, and considering everything else his body's gone through, that's probably not all that unexpected. Um, but let's continue praying for that as well. Uh, and I sent out kind of a quick email Thursday to just a few people. Um, Char had requested some, uh, some food. Um, Seattle has no food, apparently. Um, but they're, they're having a hard time getting in and out of the hospital and back to the room. And so they wanted just some, some food there to, to help. Um, and we had many people respond with, with much food. Um, so she told me to be sure I thanked all of you for your quick response. Um, it went out, I think, Thursday afternoon, and it was delivered Friday afternoon. Um, and she was very, very appreciative for all of that. So thank you very much. Um, and continue praying for all everything that goes into all of that whole ordeal. Um, but it is encouraging. Um, so that's been good. Um, so after something of a hiatus from the book of Revelation over the last few weeks, we're going to jump back in today uh, by reconnecting with the most recently covered text, chapter 5, while also kind of setting up what's coming in chapter 6. Um, so we're going to recap a little bit of chapters 4 and 5. So thank you. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> here we go. Starting in chapter 4, you remember John has this new vision, and it's a vision of heaven in the throne room, and he describes everything he sees there. It's all these bright colors he describes like precious stones, and there's a rainbow, and there's these four weird creatures, and the 24 elders, and there's someone seated on the throne. And he doesn't give any description of this person, just that there's someone there. It's all quite extraordinary. And then in chapter 5, John says he sees the one on the throne is holding a scroll with seven seals. Now, the scroll likely spells out God's plan for history, but we don't know that yet. And an angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And it says, no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able or worthy to open the scroll. And then the angel says, well, there is one, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. He has conquered, and only he is worthy to open the scroll. So John turns to see this fearsome lion of Judah, this root of David, this person ready to take charge and lead into God's plan for history, and what he sees is not a lion, but it's a lamb as though it had been slain. Now in context, I think this was probably somewhat unexpected for John, uh, a provocative image, unsettling even. How can an almost dead, nearly dead, recently dead lamb be worthy or capable of much of anything? Much less have this influence or control over current and future events. And I think the answer to that, which we're going to spend a little time trying to look at this morning, really is quite amazing. Um, So let's pray for this before we jump in. Father God, we're grateful to gather here together this morning, um, and we are grateful for your loving hand over the Freeburg family. We pray for continued healing for Elle, for uh, patience for the rest of the family um, as they're dutifully overseeing the the health and welfare and care of Al, their father and husband. And um, Lord, we're grateful for how all of that is working out. Uh, We pray this morning that our time together, uh, we would see the power of your word, how, how it tells a simple but amazing story from beginning to end. I pray that you open our our ears, our hearts, and our minds to hear all that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like much of what we're going to see in Revelation, uh, the lamb here in chapter 5 is is not just a lamb. It's a symbol. It represents something more. And a slain lamb, we have to admit, is a fairly specific kind of symbol. And we're going to consider just what that represents this morning. And I think in the process, we're going to see how this symbol has been developed over time throughout all of Scripture. Over thousands of years, in fact, from a variety of different authors. And so I feel like I need to point out that, you know, if you're talking to people about your faith or about the Bible, and and they suggest that the Bible really is just a collection of random books, uh, that the message has really evolved over time. You know, we, we go from the fearsome, angry God of the Old Testament to the kind, loving, socially active Jesus in the New Testament. Um, I would suggest that your response might be then you just haven't spent enough time researching it and reading it uh, to see how these particular themes and ideas permeate the entire book. The message has not evolved, but it has been progressively revealed. God has revealed various aspects of his plan over time. Noted preacher J. Sidlow Baxter describes it as a window blind that has slowly been lifted. 
So the view from the window has always been the same. But as more light is revealed, we begin to see more of the picture. For example, long before we get to Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, uh, where we see this lamb, though slain, who's about to become the central figure in history, not to mention central to our spiritual redemption, we read in Genesis the first book of the Bible about Adam and Eve and how they disobeyed and how they sinned against God and and their personal up-close relationship with God came to an abrupt end because a holy and sinless God can't abide with sinful creatures. And as soon as they knew they had sinned, they they put some leaves together to cover their nakedness, to cover their sin. But of course, God knew what they had done. And he called them out on it, and they were banished from the garden. But before they were banished, Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. So, although as we read through this, it almost seems like, you know, an afterthought, Uh, we have this picture of God in the earliest days of creation apparently sacrificing an animal on their behalf for the benefit of those whom he created in his image. So even in their sinful state, the Lord God loved them and provided for them through the shed blood of an animal. Well, then we get to later in Genesis, in chapter 22, and we read about Abraham and Isaac and how Abraham was called to sacrifice his son, as a test, to prove his loyalty, to, to, to prove his faith. And in an act that still astounds us today, Adam was prepared to go along, or Abraham was prepared to go along. And at some point along the journey, we're told, Isaac gets an idea that something is not right. You know, he says, hey, pops, we got fire, we got wood, I don't see an animal for this sacrifice. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And sure enough, as Adam drew out his knife, Abraham drew out his knife to obey the command from his God to sacrifice his son. An angel speaks out and he says, Abraham, hold up. Don't don't proceed. Wait right there. You've passed the test. And the Lord will provide for himself a lamb for the offering. And at that moment, Abraham saw the, the ram stuck over in the bush, stuck in the thicket. And the Lord provided for himself a sacrificial lamb. Now, the Lord would eventually require the death of a son for a sacrifice, but it wasn't going to be Abraham's son. Now, flash forward again a few hundred years, and and one book later in the book of Genesis, the Israelites find themselves enslaved in the land of Egypt. I'm not going to go through all the details because we've seen the movie a few times. We know how they got there. The Israelites are having a really hard time. And in Exodus 2.23, it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Their cry for rescue came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And one of the things I find amazing about this is this cry came up to God part. Their their prayers, their pleas for help and mercy, they they came up. we, We get this impression almost of like smoke rising up which is how Revelation describes the prayers of the saints. God saw the people, he heard the people, and he knew. And in the very next verse, right after this, we start reading about Moses and the burning bush. So God had a plan. And he begins to execute the plan by preparing Moses. And again, we know the story. Along the way to salvation, Pharaoh refuses to obey the will of God. Uh, So Jehovah God starts to make a statement. 
that not only is he preeminent above all of the Egyptian gods, which aren't really gods at all, but when Pharaoh refuses to obey God's command to let his people go, as the, as the people cry out to their God for mercy and salvation, God shows his remarkable power through the introduction of plagues. But he also showed remarkable restraint in limiting the effect of the plagues. You remember, there are some of those plagues that they only affected certain parts of the country. They only affected certain people in the country. They only lasted for certain periods of time. They were controlled. That is not unlike what we're going to see with the seals and the trumpets and the bulls. It's a demonstration of God's power and his control. But eventually, Pharaoh's stubbornness brought about the last and final plague on Egypt, where where Jehovah God showed he was preeminent even over life and death. And this was accomplished through the sacrifice of a lamb. The Israelites were told on the 14th day of the month, each each household had to prepare a lamb for slaughter. And not just any lamb, it couldn't be the bummer lamb, right? It couldn't be the ugliest or the weakest or the one that had the weird bleat that drove everybody crazy. It had to be a male, a perfect lamb without blemish. And at twilight, on the 14th day of the month, every household would slaughter their lamb. They'd put some of its blood on the lintel, the the header, and, and on the doorpost. And then they were to cook and eat the lamb. So the people had to collect the blood, presumably in a bowl or a basin, and they would apply the blood to, to the lintel and the doorpost. And little did they know they were making the sign of the cross as they're applying this blood. Another significant symbol of coming redemption. But this blood identified the people of God so that when death came, it passed over their houses, passed over the houses that had been covered, been protected with the blood of the Lamb. And then we know that this this animal blood sacrifice becomes the basis for temple worship throughout the rest of Israel's history. A a, a system of sacrifices was established to deal with various types of sins and transgressions. And God also incorporated the sacrificial system into the system of feasts and festivals. In fact, the Passover feast was established to memorialize and remember that God had saved his people from the Egyptians. So early on in the Old Testament, we have this idea that the sacrifice of a lamb was forever linked symbolically to the restoration of the covenant between God and Israel. The sacrifice of a lamb was forever linked to a blood requirement for atonement and for reconciliation between God and man. The sacrifice of a lamb in temple sacrifice was forever linked to redemption, for, uh, of our being forgiven for our sins and saved from the penalty of death. And not surprisingly, as we go throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there are numerous references to a lamb, often in terms of sacrifice, but there's even a, a significant number of references to a Passover lamb. And for the Israelites, this custom, this, this ritual of sacrificing a lamb... Uh, it had great meaning for them, and the meaning for them was, was rooted in the past. It pointed back to God's saving of them from the Egyptians. It was looking back to their salvation from the hands of their captors. But then we get to Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And we start to see that the symbolic significance of the Lamb looks back, but it also starts to point forward. 
This is another step in a series of steps of progressive revelation. And Isaiah is an interesting book because it starts by saying, this is a vision. So we expect to see symbols. We expect to see things that are hard to describe, hard to explain. But it's also heavy in prophecy. So by chapter 7, Isaiah has an audience with King Ahaz, who's worried about a potential attack against his kingdom, and and who's going to save him. And Isaiah tells him in chapter 7, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Who's going to save you from the attack? Well, the virgin's going to have a son. Now, at that moment, I'm not sure this meant a whole lot to King Ahaz. But this is an early road marker for us of what is to come. And notice, Isaiah is looking ahead. He says, a virgin shall conceive. It hasn't happened yet. He's been given an indication, an idea of events still to come. So this is kind of like the first breadcrumb, the first in a series of progressive revelations that Isaiah is going to receive. He goes on again in in chapter 9, and he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So first again, notice the tense. For unto us a child is is born. Now, we know that Isaiah is talking about the birth of Jesus, which has not yet happened, but it has been ordained and established by the Lord, so it's as good as a done deal. And then Isaiah goes on here to provide this list of all the things that this as yet unborn and unidentified Messiah, Savior person, all the things this person is going to accomplish. And it's, it's a pretty decent resume. Mighty Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, King. He's going to be holy. He's going to be just. So the Lord, through Isaiah, is beginning to lay the groundwork for the impending arrival of, well, who or what? A warrior who's going to establish a kingdom? A king from the line of David who will rule over this kingdom? A prophet? A counselor? An arbiter of truth and justice? Perhaps even a a redeemer, someone who will save their people from their present circumstance. Now, based on the gifts and talents that Isaiah lays out here, the skill set of this person is pretty significant. This is going to have to be quite a specimen. Someone perhaps royal in bearing, warrior-like in appearance. I mean, God truly is going to send, based on this, a, a marauding, kingly warrior type to punish the wicked and rescue his people. And it's pretty clear that what, we're, what we should expect is a warrior, king, prophet, redeemer, all rolled into one. I mean, symbolically, that's about as far from a sacrificial lamb as you can get. But the description, the, the prophecy from Isaiah continues. Isaiah 53, he says, This person... Uh, Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, 
he was despised and we esteemed him not. So we just went from what seems like this pretty high bar, you know, of this warrior king, prophet, redeemer, now to a guy who's not majestic in any way. He's not pleasing in appearance. A man who is despised and rejected so that men go as far as to hide from him. This is not an effective recruiting poster for our warrior king, prophet, redeemer. This is not the guy, it seems, that we're likely to put our trust in, who's going to lead us into battle against the forces of evil, who's going to teach us to live well and be holy. But Isaiah's not done yet. He continues, he said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, this is a little more interesting. I mean, this warrior king, prophet, redeemer type, this is the guy we've been expecting. I mean, he may not be coming to lead us into battle, but he will come to bear our griefs. He will carry our sorrows. He, he will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. This, this as yet unnamed warrior type person, he may not be that warrior. He may not be that king, but, but these are kind of the righteous acts of a good king and the things he would do for his kingdom, for his people. So the warrior king, prophet, redeemer that Isaiah seemed to point to in the first part of the book we're now told, will not come to wipe out all of our enemies. He's not going to come to wipe out all the perpetrators of evil, at least not right away. But the coming warrior, king, prophet, redeemer will come to take on to himself the pain and the suffering and the punishment that we deserve as a result of our evil doing. He may not be the warrior king we expect, but perhaps he's the warrior king that we need. And how is that going to work? The next verse, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. When you look at all this in context, that's, this is a fairly significant moment. I mean, this is kind of an amazing plot twist. Our expectations have been redirected. This, this as yet unnamed person, this warrior king, prophet, redeemer, is going to be all of those things, warrior king, prophet, and redeemer, eventually. But first, he will be like a lamb led to slaughter, dying for us, carrying our sorrows, being pierced for our transgressions, being crushed for our iniquities. The long Old Testament history of sacrificial Passover lambs all serve to cause us to remember God's faithful deliverance of his people in the past through the sacrifice of a lamb, through the, through the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered. And now we're beginning to see that this also starts to point ahead towards a coming deliverer, the coming redeemer, another sacrificial lamb, as yet unnamed. So Isaiah gives us this amazing turning point in the story of redemption, which largely, I think, probably went unappreciated or little understood in, in its day. It provided hope for sure that there was a deliverer who would come, 
But few of the details here would have applied to the people then. Now, post-Jesus, this means something entirely different for us. This all becomes so much clearer. All of these breadcrumbs from Genesis through Isaiah and beyond, which have been progressively revealed over thousands of years, all begin to make more sense. One who will deal with the wickedness of people uh, will, will be salvation for those who believe, come from the line of Jesse, from the line of David, born of a virgin. These are all prophecies, all predictions that helped identify and establish Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. Jesus came to be our warrior king, prophet, slaughtered lamb, redeemer. It seems so clear. And yet, the Lord created us. He knows us better than anyone. He knows we're not always that bright. He's given us all the necessary dots to to make this connection, to, to reveal more light, to help us see the big picture but either we aren't paying attention at all, uh, or, or, or we're too preoccupied with this life to even think about what comes next, or we just refuse to see how the dots connect. Whatever the case, we, just, we don't always see the Jesus, the Lamb, that God intends for us to see. But the Lord is slow to anger, and he's abounding in mercy. He desires his creation to be gathered around him. He's unwilling that any should perish. He doesn't just throw up his hands and walk away from us, like we would do if the situation was reversed. So when Jesus is born, whose birth fulfills hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, when Jesus reaches his ministry period, about the age of 30 or so, we read his story in John 1. And we're told about a man named John the Baptist who is stirring up quite a ruckus in the area. Uh, John 1, 6 says, uh, John was sent from God as a witness to bear witness about the light. And it stresses John the Baptist wasn't the light. He was sent to tell about the light. He came to bear witness about the true light, to shed more light on just who this Messiah, Redeemer person actually is. But everything he was saying as a witness bearer got people all stirred up to the point where the the, the Jews and and the priests they started thinking, well, maybe John the Baptist is this guy. So they called him in. They said, who are you? And the text says he confessed. I'm not the one you're looking for. And they said, all right, well, are you Elijah? And he said, no. They said, are you the prophet? And he said, no. And now increasingly exasperated, the priests say, tell us who you are. And John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, let's just pause here and remember that the priests and the people, I mean, all of Israel, they were expecting a deliverer. They were waiting for this Messiah-type person. Israel and all the prophets had foretold that they were anticipating a Messiah, a Savior, but in the mold of a warrior king, prophet, redeemer. Someone to save them from the the despotic rule of the Romans. Whoever this Christ was, whoever this Messiah was, he was going to address and fix all of their immediate felt needs. And there was this fleeting hope that it might be John the Baptist. I mean, he was kind of a weird dude. He, He could be the one. And they were ready, they thought, for their Redeemer. They were ready for the Messiah. But John wasn't their warrior king, prophet, Redeemer. But they called him in and questioned him anyway. And then we're told on the very next day, the very next day after being questioned by the priest, John's out preaching again, proclaiming about the one who was to come. And verse 29 says, he sees Jesus coming. And in verse 29, it says, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. It's difficult to overstate the significance of this proclamation. John knew the authorities were actively looking for a Messiah. He knew they were looking for a political leader. They, they wanted a social activist. They, they wanted a military commander, someone to solve all their problems. They were hoping for a warrior king, prophet, redeemer, all rolled into one person. And yet, the story that John was telling, the, the message he was sent to share, the light he was revealing, the truth he'd been assigned to tell was that Jesus was the one they were expecting. But he came to deal with their biggest problem, their greatest need, And it wasn't any of the ones they perceived as most significant. He didn't come to deal with Roman rule. He didn't come to deal with taxation without representation or equal rights or the banning of petroleum-based papyrus manufacturing. None of that was on Jesus' agenda. Jesus came to heal, to fix, to set aright man's spiritual separation from God. Every other social, political, personal issue pales in comparison to that. None of those other problems, as bad as they might have been, as, as bad as they might be now, none of those exp- extend past this life. But our spiritual condition affects eternity. So even though Jesus truly can be called warrior, king, prophet, redeemer, his first task was to be redeemer. His first task was to be our slaughtered lamb. He came to take away the sin of the world. And just a few short years later, after John's proclamation, his prescient words came to pass. Jesus was condemned to die on a cross. Not for crossing the Pharisees or not for intimidating the Romans. He was condemned to die on a cross to take away the sin of the world. That was God's plan from the, from the beginning. First hinted at in the garden and carries all the way through Expounded on throughout the Old Testament prophets, confirmed in the New Testament. We see it in 1 Corinthians 5. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1 says, we are, We're ransomed, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Jesus even died for us during Passover season, the season that commemorates salvation. Through the shed blood of a lamb. I mean, all the dots are connected. He came to save us like a lamb to slaughter. He came to be our redeemer. And by rising from the grave on the third day, he proved that he was God. He was preeminent above all other gods. He was preeminent over sin and death. So in chapter 5 of Revelation, when John hears about the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the only one capable, the only one worthy of controlling future events, I think in his mind he's probably picturing a warrior king, prophet, redeemer, and what he sees is a lamb looking as though it had been slain, but who was alive and who had conquered death and who was worthy. So this slaughtered lamb we see here is highly symbolic of all of history of God's plan being brought to fulfillment, of God's great love for us and Jesus' sacrificial death for us. It's symbolic of forgiveness and salvation for all who believe. It symbolizes Jesus' power over death and assures us that this power makes this lamb fully qualified and capable of being our warrior and king and prophet as well. 
the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. In fact, we're going to see as we go throughout the rest of Revelation, it's going to go on to describe Jesus as a king. It's going to describe him as a warrior. It's going to describe him as a prophet, as a bridegroom, as a conqueror. But 27 times in the book of Revelation, it refers to him as a lamb. So the symbolism introduced here in chapters 4 and 5 helps to set the tone for what is to come for the rest of the book. It is symbolic. We need to understand as much as we can what God's all got wrapped up in all of this. And we do that best by interpreting these symbols through a biblical lens. Not by bringing in all of this other stuff that so-called experts have been coming up with for 150 years now. We'll start with Scripture first. What does it tell us? We'll see how all of this works together towards God's ultimate plan. If we bring in all these other outside sources, it makes it easier for us to miss what God really is saying to us. We're going to do our best to limit ourselves to what Scripture is telling us about these symbols. Now, we don't observe Passover as a general rule, but we do observe communion for the very same reasons. To remember that our rescue, our redemption was purchased by blood, that Jesus died for us to pay the penalty for our sin. So as I ask the guys to come forward, and the worship team will come up in a minute, we're going to participate in sharing in communion this morning, remembering that Jesus was our sacrificial lamb. He died in our place, and we can benefit from his sacrifice by claiming his promise of forgiveness of sins, guaranteeing us an eternity in the presence of our Lord and Creator, and we'll remember this great gift of love that God has given us sacrifice of his son for our benefit so as the team plays and the guys pass stuff out just hang on to them and then we'll take the elements together when we're finished father we are grateful this morning uh, grateful for your love for the fact that you are slow to anger and abounding in mercy how lost we would be without that we're grateful that your plan for creation included uh, an an avenue a, a plan for our forgiveness and redemption that our sins can be forgiven and forgotten, even as we struggle with the consequences of our sin, even when we struggle to forgive ourselves, Lord, we know that your victory over the grave proves your love and power to forgive the worst offender. Your gift of love extends even to the most unlovable, and we are grateful. So search our hearts, Lord. Help us deal with forgotten or, or persistent sin. Help us to continue to strive towards holiness, to grow in our desire to be more Christ-like, we thank you for your great love and patience for us. In Jesus' name, amen.